like you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Genesis. And uh, we're going to be talking today about the Pentateuch. Contrary to my um, typical way of going verse by verse, we're going to cover five books this morning. And we're going to do that in about 30 minutes. So... uh, Get ready, fasten your seatbelts. This is going to be a quick uh, flight over the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch means five, and it deals with the first five books of the Bible that were written by Moses by divine inspiration. Uh, It's important to note that because uh, a number of the events, well, most of the events in Genesis, all of them, occurred before Moses was born. And uh, many people today uh, want to attribute the stories in Genesis to um, stories that were circulating among different tribes and people groups of that period of time. And, and their take on it is that uh, Genesis is just a collection of similar stories that Moses wrote down from the popular thinking. The difference is that according to the scripture itself, Moses is writing by divine inspiration. Um, The reason there are many similar stories, like the flood story, for example, uh, and uh, things of that nature, the, the Babel story where the people were divided. The reason there are so many similar kinds of stories is because they happen to be true. There is a his, uh, an historical foundation for these events that have been passed down from the beginning through the families by oral tradition. And so nations of the world, and and even today, missionaries discover, uh, for example, uh, earlier in this century as they moved into different um, regions that were unreached and untouched, they discovered they had flood stories, for example. And uh, so the question is, how did they get those? Well, because they happened. (laughs) And they got them because they were passed down from the ancestors. But they got polluted. And different uh, stories that other people groups have are stories that in one way or another were somewhat altered from the actual true truth of the history. God inspired Moses to write the true truth. Moses gives us the account by divine inspiration upon which we can uh, anchor our lives and our own history because the Bible happens to be the truth. And so uh, Moses was not simply collecting the stories of his time although he was undoubtedly aware of them because he had been trained and schooled in the land of Egypt and they had libraries and they had uh, studies and uh, they had training and all of that kinds of stuff and they were brilliant mathematicians. 
But um, Moses is relying on God directing him in the writing of the Pentateuch. So when we go back to Genesis and we go to the Garden of Eden, we go to the story of Babel, and we go to the story of the flood, and we go to the story of Abram, uh, and begin to read these accounts, we can rely on the fact that they speak to us the truth. That this is what really happened. And we can count on it because it was given to us by God. Now, one of the things that we want to recognize as we look at the Pentateuch, and and one of the reasons this morning why I want us to do a, a flyover is because the Bible has a central theme. It has a message that God is wanting to communicate to people and to His people in particular that gives us the overarching perspective of God's plan of redemption. Notice that's the title of this series, The Unfolding of God's plan of redemption. And that the Bible is not a collection of disjointed and unrelated events, but it is actually a seamless thread that starts in the very beginning and runs throughout all of Scripture, bringing us to what Paul calls in Galatians the fullness of time, when Jesus Christ comes to this earth to be the Redeemer and to establish His church, and as we celebrated this morning, the shedding of His blood and His death upon the cross that uh, reminds us and takes us to uh, God's ultimate plan and purpose of all that preceded it. So when we go back to Genesis... We're not just reading about individual little snippets. We're reading about a a grand theme that characterizes God's love for a lost race and is seeking to restore that race, the human race, to fellowship with Him. The scripture says in the prophets, Behold, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And even though we certainly see God's judgment and justice and righteousness being expressed in the scriptures, we also see the underlying message that he loves people and he desires to bring them to a saving knowledge of himself. So I just want to hit some of the high spots of Genesis as we begin this morning. Uh, how God made a man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and he said, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, uh, rule over it. I've given you this world for your home. And I've given you Eden in particular. And uh, I will walk with you and talk with you and we will enjoy 
this wonderful fellowship together. But I do not want to force you into that relationship. You know, love that is forced is really manipulation. It's control. And God desires us to love Him freely from a heart that is devoted to Him by choice, not by uh, requirement. We're not programmed to love Him. We are given the opportunity to follow Him. And He gave that to Adam and Eve. And we know exactly how that story began to unfold as they were tempted by Satan himself at a tree in the garden uh, to eat of it. And they went their own way and turned away from God. And the consequence of that was that they plunged the human race into sin and evil and darkness. The light went out, so to speak, and the world was plunged into darkness. And all that follows is the story of man's catastrophic rebellion to God and God's longing to bring humankind back home. The Bible tells us that by Genesis chapter 6, which is not too far into the story, a thousand or so years perhaps, into the story, a couple thousand years, the scripture says that the thoughts and intent of man's heart over the whole face of the planet was evil continually. You know, we read the news today, or we hear it, and we see terrible things that people do to one another. And we hear about awful things, and, and we kind of uh, are aghast that human beings can treat each other the way they do. We look historically at uh, that on a grand scale, such as the Holocaust and uh, events like that, and, and the communist revolutions in Russia and in China. And we look at the mass murder. We look at the murder that goes on in Africa and uh, the contention that happens and the horrible destruction of man to man. Imagine a world in which every human being has that agenda. There's not one single good person. Everyone is evil. Everyone uh, is involved in immorality. Everyone is involved uh, in, in imagining and, and planning uh, rape and murder and uh, theft and robbery and uh, destroying one another. All day long, their thoughts are absorbed with evil things. This was part of the work of Satan to bring human beings to a place where they would self-destruct. That God would become so angry with them, He would obliterate them from the face of the planet. And that the, the whole race would, in essence, self-destruct. And so, we're told in Genesis 6 that God finds one man who's holding out for the truth, and that man is Noah. And the scripture says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
And so God says to Noah, I want you to build an ark. And it takes Noah a long time to build the ark. And if you could imagine this huge boat beginning to develop on dry land, and it is really huge. We're looking at some pictures on, on the computer of a replica this uh, past week, and, and it's uh, more than one and a half football fields long, uh, 50-something feet high, uh, wider than a football field. It, it's just a, a huge, huge monstrosity of a boat that Noah built over the bulk of his lifetime, it seems. And you can imagine the message that God is bringing through that boat as they hear him hammering and sawing and pegging wood and milling wood and cutting down trees day after day, year after year, as Noah, as Noah is a preacher of righteousness according to the scriptures. Peter tells us that, that he was a preacher of righteousness. That every day that he's out there building, he is pleading with people to flee the wrath to come, to, to be uh, prepared to meet God, to come to faith, to change their lives, to get on the boat with him. And they ignore him. And so ultimately... Uh, the day comes when the fountains of the deep are broken up and the heavens open up and the floodwaters begin to rise and the rain begins to fall and uh, much worse than Houston, uh, the water begins to rise in all of their homes and there's no dry ground and the scripture tells us that God himself closed the door and sealed it to the ark because... He could not risk having one unrighteous, ungodly person be saved to start that whole process over again, as it were. God knew that Noah had enough seed in him, in his own self of sin, that uh, he didn't need any help from the belligerently ungodly. And I cannot imagine how Noah must have felt as God closed the door and people by the hundreds, perhaps thousands, treading water, clamoring to get into the boat. And there was no way in. There was no way they could be rescued because God wiped out the evil that was upon the face of the earth and started the race over with this man and his one family called Noah. Why does God do things like that? He does so because he desires to save. He desires to redeem, to, to recover and restore the human race. A lot of times we look at those uh, stories and we think to ourselves, how how could a God of love do this? Well, let me ask you this question. Would a God of love turn out a maximum security prison and release all of the murderers and uh, rapists and armed robbers on a town because he loved them and thought it was unfair that they be locked up? 
In fact, God had a different plan for them. It was called the death penalty. They didn't have to spend their life in misery. They, according to the Old Testament scriptures, they were just uh, put to death because they would bring destruction. In the midst of a sinful world, love often demands a strong response. And in the case of Noah, God destroyed the human race except for this family that he might start over. Well, it wasn't long. God told them to scatter out and repopulate the earth. That was his direction to them. And what did they do? They collected together and built a tower. They didn't want to scatter out. They wanted to start all over again. They wanted to to erect this tower, this citadel, that would be a beacon to them of unified purpose and cause. And God knew that several generations had already passed now and the evil had begun to proliferate again. And it wasn't going to be long before, uh, as God put it, who knows what they'll be able to do. Look, they've built this tower up into the sky. And who knows what they're, they're going to uh, accomplish as long as they can communicate with one another and pool their knowledge and pool their experience and uh, get everything together. I am going to confuse their language. I'm going to make it so they can't even talk to each other. Because if I don't stop this again somehow, uh, it's going to be another disaster. And so at the Tower of Babel, the scripture says, one day they greeted each other and uh, they found out, you know, one of them was saying, Hola, como estas? Someone else was saying, Ni hao ma? And it was like, What's happening? We can't talk to each other. And God caused the very confusion of language to scatter them across the face of the earth. Because they wouldn't do it on their own. (laughs) He designed a system that would drive them apart. If you want to know where races and languages and uh, people groups began, God himself created it. And he created it to establish divisions. Not racial divisions, not uh, uh, that kind of nationalism, but to drive people far enough apart that they would not be able to have uh, collusion in their plans to thwart the purposes of God. And so Babel was that place where the race was uh, confused and divided. And then, as time went along, God called out this man by the name of Abram. And he said to him, Abram, get up from your father's house and from Ur of the Chaldeans. Get up and go to a land that I'm going to show you, and I will make of you a great nation. All along, God has been planning in the fulfillment of his promise to Adam and Eve through your seed, through Eve, your seed, will come a Redeemer through whom all the world will be blessed. It has taken all this time now to come to this man, Abram, whose name was eventually changed to Abraham, 
Don't have time to pursue that thread this morning. But God added His Spirit to His name, in essence. And Abraham was the chosen person to begin the familial establishment of a race uh, of people, of a national group that would reflect the glory and the calling of God. And if you, if you look at uh, Abram as he moves out of Ur of the Chaldeans, God takes him to the land of Canaan. And he says, this is the land I'm going to give you. You know, that land is special. That land is a promised land. And when we talk about a promised land, we're not really talking about a, a land that is so uh, glorious and um, uh, wonderful and uh, a special blessing, although it is all of those things. Right now, it's pretty much of a desert. But it's a promised land because it was the land that was promised. It was promised to Abram, to his family. And God intended through him to bless all the peoples of the world. That was God's promise to him. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to build you a nation. And out of that nation will come one who will bless all the peoples of the land. We're told in Genesis that Abram had a son, grandson, great-grandson. Isaac was born to him, a son of promise. Uh, from Isaac um, came uh, Jacob and Esau. And God promised to Jacob, he said, I'm going to bring you back to this land. And I'm going to cause kings to come from you. And I'm going to cause a great nation to come from you. And thousands of people will come from you. And, and you will be a blessing. He promised Jacob this when Jacob hadn't even married yet. He was on his way running from his brother Esau to get to Padanaram uh, and, and to find a wife and to get away from Esau. You can read all about that story, but uh, Rebekah had... Uh, cooked up a scheme that would cause Jacob to get the blessing while Esau was out hunting. And things did not go so well because Esau was technically the firstborn and Jacob swindled him out of his birthright. Uh, we could talk about how God could have accomplished that without Jacob's help, but uh, Jacob felt it important to take matters into his own hands and created the problems that he did. And so he goes to Padanaram and he marries Rachel and then Leah and then he takes two concubines and um, by the time he comes back home and meets his brother and goes back to the land of Canaan, he has uh, sons. He has the beginning of a nation. Uh, he has... Uh, the, that seed from which Israel will grow. And on the way back, as he confronts uh, his own fears of dealing with Esau, the scripture says, as he was crossing the brook Jabbok, he met an angel who wrestled with him in the night. And uh, in the process of that wrestling match, uh, Jacob would not let go he said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. 
and uh, he got a surprise. He got his thigh socket put out of place, and he ended up with a limp, a weakness the rest of his life. But in the course of that, God changed his name. He said, no longer will you be called the one who swindles people and grabs them by the heel. But I'm going to change your name to Israel, which means prince with God, because you're going to be a mighty prince. And out of you will come this great blessing to the nations. We know the story of his sons and Joseph. Joseph was a bit of an arrogant young man. Uh, we like to think uh, of him as being this uh, darling child, but really he was uh, a pain uh, to his brothers. Uh, he was uh, the favorite of his dad. He was constantly aggravating them. And um, they eventually uh, took advantage of an opportunity when his father sent him to see how they were doing. They thought, we can put him in a pit and we'll kill him. But uh, Judah wasn't about to let that happen, the oldest son. He couldn't make his father suffer any more grief. And so what happened was they sold him off to the Egyptians, to, to a caravan, and he ended up being a slave in the land of Egypt. And you look at all of those events and you say, why did all of this happen? But God is setting up a plan. And Joseph ends up being broken of his pride and arrogance. That does happen, you know. God has a way of bringing us down when we need to be. And God brought Joseph down low. He found himself in prison. And yet there was a nature, a spirit about Joseph that he wanted to uh, be of benefit. And so he even helped out in prison, helped the, the guards. And ultimately, he became an interpreter of dreams by the hand of God. And it was when Pharaoh was uh, disturbed by a dream that someone remembered Joseph and said, there's a, there's a man in the prison that can tell dreams and explain them. And so Pharaoh sent for Joseph. Joseph explains his dream, the seven years of uh, blessing and feast and the seven years of famine. And uh, the Pharaoh says, well, since you've explained this dream to me and since you have such wisdom, I'm going to put you in charge. I'm going to make you the head over all the land of Egypt. Only You will only be second in command to me. I will make you the one who uh, guides the whole nation to save it. And so he taxed the people and collected their harvest and ultimately... Uh, was prepared with stockpiles of food when the time came for the famine to ensue. And Joseph, through the wisdom that God gave him, literally saved the land of Egypt. And in the midst of the famine, his brothers, his father sends his brothers to Egypt to, uh, to go and get uh, some food. 
and then the next time uh, they go, um, Joseph wants them to bring the whole family down. And they're a little hesitant about that. They don't have any idea who he is. He looks like an Egyptian. He dresses like an Egyptian. He's wearing the royal robes of the king's palace. And uh, he has uh, uh, all of this, uh, you know, entourage around him that are part of the, the royal household. And he sets it up where he puts contraband in um, Benjamin's sack and brings him back to Egypt and uh, Judah can't bear it he's just overwhelmed he says I, I cannot go back to my father without this boy <laughs> I, you've got to let him go take me take me instead and Joseph realizes that his brothers have had a dramatic change of heart. And so out of that amazing change of heart, Joseph uh, reveals himself at dinner. And their first thought is, he's going to get even and kill us all. <laughs> but Joseph had something very different in mind as he says, bring your dad down here, bring our father and we will give you a place to live in the land of Goshen. And that begins a period of 400 years. Now, when you think about 400 years, we can read this story in a few chapters in Genesis. But when you read about 400 years, do you realize that's a little longer than the age of our own country? I mean, think of the pilgrims. This takes us back to the pilgrims. This takes us back to the foundation of this nation. Think about uh, the, the revolution. Think about George Washington. Think about the beginning of the presidency. Go all the way back in time. This is a long time. This is a long time. And, and during that period of time, the family continues to be blessed and to prosper and to grow and, and to get bigger and bigger. And then the scripture says there came a change of dynasty when a different Pharaoh came to power who did not remember Joseph and wondered what are all these people doing over in the land of Goshen. They're becoming too big. They're becoming too strong. We need to... Uh, take over this situation and control it and he makes slaves of all of them I've often thought that uh, God has amazing ways of dealing with us you know um, because he takes the Israelites and as he uh, allows them to come into forced labor guess what's happening they're getting stronger the more bricks they make, the more straw they collect, the stronger they're getting. The more powerful they're becoming. And then they came up with the idea that we'll kill all the baby boys because uh, this nation is getting out of hand. And we've got to, to rectify this situation. And so they began a system of killing all the baby boys 
of the Israelites and that leads us to the book of Exodus where Moses is born and hidden in a basket in the reeds. These are not just children's stories. These are the stories of God's purpose and plan of redemption that at just the right time when the nation of Israel has reached the right size and the right strength and the right capacity that God brings Moses onto the scene. He causes him to be raised in Pharaoh's household. Moses is trained in all the ways of Egypt. He's trained literally in Pharaoh's court. He learns all about the military. He learns all about the math and the science. Uh, Moses becomes a, a key person uh, as treated as a, a son of the daughter of Pharaoh. And then you know how that story went. He had a heart always for his people because his own birth mother actually became his nurse and caretaker and she influenced him throughout his developing years with the stories of God. And there came a day when he saw one of the Egyptian guards mistreating a Hebrew slave and he killed him. And he thought nobody saw him. But some of the Hebrews saw him. And the next day, the scripture says, he saw two Hebrews fighting among themselves. And he decided that he would break that fight up because why would brothers be fighting with one another? And as he went to break it up, one of them said, are you going to kill one of us like you did the Egyptian? And Moses knew the secret was out. And so he fled the land of Egypt. He was 40 years old when he fled the land of Egypt. And he went to the desert of Midian. And there he lived as a sheep herder for 40 years. What do you think God was doing in Moses' life? First of all, he trains him in all of the scholarship of Egypt. And then he sends him to Midian to learn how to tend sheep. What do you think he was getting him ready for? Being a leader of the Israelites who were pretty sheepy. <laughs> and he needed to have all of that preparation. He was humbled. His spirit was broken. He was expecting to live out his days. He married... Uh, a, a woman from that area, his father-in-law Jethro, um, let him take care of his flocks. And as far as Moses was concerned, he had failed. He had messed up his life. Uh, but he was growing content as a shepherd. And so he decided to just live that way. But... One day, he's out there with the sheep, and he sees a bush on fire. You imagine? Just a, a bush suddenly is on fire. And he says, I've got to go see this thing. 
And as he approaches that bush, what does he hear? Moses, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. And Moses realizes he has an encounter with God. A bush that is burning but not consumed. What is happening? And so God says to him, Time to go back to Egypt, Moses. You thought it was over. You're 80 years old. You thought you were done. But guess what? You're going back to the land of Egypt, and I want you to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, God, I can't talk. I stammer. I I stutter. I can't be a spokesman. What's wrong with you, God? <laughs> what are you thinking? And God says, Moses, who made your mouth? Well, Moses continues to plead and resist, and he says, I'll tell you what, I'll let your brother Aaron go with you. Now, it's interesting in time that Moses ended up doing a lot of speaking. But at the front end of it, God says, you can take Aaron with you, and he can be your spokesman if necessary, but I'm going to tell you what I want said. And then Moses comes up with another excuse. He says, I can't just show up in Pharaoh's house and say, let my people go. Whom shall I say sent me? And God says, you tell Pharaoh that I am sent you. I am the all-sufficient one. I am the eternally existing one. I am God. You tell him, I am that I am has sent you. And he will not understand that right away, but he will get it in time. And Moses goes back, and you know how the ten plagues unfold. As God releases his people from the land of Egypt and they go out into the desert and they prepare to worship God and God gives to them the law I'm just going to hit the high spot here but as God leads his people into the desert and reveals to Moses the law on Mount Sinai there is a covenant being established that consists of two tablets of stone, four laws pertaining to God and six laws pertaining to man's relationship with man. And as we look at that, uh, those Ten Commandments, what we discover is that they are a revelation of the character of God. He wants a people that will reflect His character. That's the goal. And so, when God says you will not lie, it's because God's not a liar. When He says you will keep your covenant, it's because God's a covenant-keeping God. When he says you will not murder, it's because God does not kill people without reason. When 
He tells them to worship Him and Him alone because He's the only true God. Those Ten Commandments reflect the nature and the character of God. And His people are intended to reflect His nature and His character. They're unlike any other people group of that period of time or any group since. That through the law they might begin to reflect the glory of God. And yet, you notice what is given in the law as we uh, study Leviticus and study Numbers and even the end of uh, Exodus, we find that there's a whole sacrificial system instituted. Why? Because God knew they would sin. No matter how clearly He made the revelation of His character, they would violate it in sin. And they needed to be able to have atonement for their sin. And so that Passover that they celebrated the night they left Egypt is instituted as a covenant relationship with them throughout their time as a time of remembrance that the the blood is on the doorway. It eventually becomes the doorway into the throne room of God. It becomes uh, a place for us to enter into the very presence of God by the blood of the eternal covenant. The writer of Hebrews tells us that. It is that blood that makes it possible for us to have forgiveness. It is the death of the Lamb that makes it possible for us to have healing and resurrection. And God gives them all of these guidelines for uh, the um, sacrifice so that they can understand that even though His character is revealed in the law, His mercy is also revealed in the sacrifice. And they can have a, a, a way of atoning for their sin and coming back to faith in God. And so, as they come to the end of their wilderness journey, which lasts 40 years, by the way, not because God wanted it to last 40 years. He planned for it to last about two. But they got to Kadesh Barnea and they lost their faith. And they were convinced they were not going to be able to invade the land of Canaan. And so God says, all right, well, just take care of the rest of you. You can die out here in the desert and I'll raise up another generation. And as he does so, uh, he prepares them to go into the land of Canaan. And Deuteronomy is, in essence, Moses' last message as he reminds them of the law and reminds them of all the things God has done and all the covenants that He has made. And as God prepares them through Moses to enter the land of Canaan, we come to the end of Deuteronomy. As Moses passes off the scene... And Joshua rises to take the place of leadership and to lead them across the Jordan River and into the land of promise. And a nation is born in a new land. I want us to understand this morning that from Genesis through Deuteronomy, God is telling us a story. He's telling us a story of redeeming a lost race, of recovering what was lost, of establishing a nation 
through whom one day would come a Messiah, and that that Messiah would be the Redeemer that would save us from our sin. Not in sacrifices repeated year after year, but once and for all through the blood of the eternal covenant, leading us into the presence of God. The scripture says, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 verse 24, The law is a tutor, it's a teacher, a schoolmaster, designed to bring us to justification by faith. Ultimately, the purpose of the law is to prove to us that despite its purity, its goodness, and its holiness, we can't keep it. We need someone to cleanse us and then to empower us that through the life of Christ himself, the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk in our own strength and power, but walk in the power of his spirit. And so we're at that point where we're about to enter a journey with Israel through revival, through destruction, through good kings and bad kings, through the judges who were a little bit nutty, and through the other inclinations and stories of the history of Israel throughout that period of time and the prophets whom God called to bring his word to them. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the truth, that you would give us the grand overview of your love for a lost race, and that in doing so, we would be among those who would understand the real meaning of justification by faith and the power of the deeper life in your Holy Spirit to do through us what we cannot do on our own. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.